And Lord, we come to you today because we know, Father, we still have work to do. The scriptures are here to give us all that we need for life and godliness so that in our pursuit of pleasing you, we wouldn't fall short. So teach us, Father. Show us how we may be pleasing. Show us, Father, what we may need to know in order to serve you better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is our third week in this study, and we are barely four verses into Paul's letter to Ephesus. And there are, there, in case you're counting, there are 155 verses in this letter. So I did the math. We are 2.5% of the way through this book. And at this rate, we will finish the letter sometime in two years from now. Now, I know there are some of you in here that are not at all surprised to hear me say this. To the rest of you, let me assure you that my intention is to pick up the pace a little bit over what we've been doing. But, to be honest, there are some parts of this letter that are going to require some extra attention. And so when we get to those parts, I'm going to go as slow as I think we need to in order to grasp it properly. Then again, there'll be places where we'll pick up the pace a little bit. But as it turns out, the first three chapters of this book are that section of doctrine that requires us to go a little more slowly. Doctrine is tough to chew on. You know, it's like a piece of meat that needs a little, little extra time. And so there are going to be those points of slowing. And honestly, if I look at the letter as a whole, Ephesians 1 through 3 at least, I don't know that there are many places in the New Testament in which you'll find deeper doctrine, in which you'll find more challenging things to learn. So when we get to 4 through 6, yeah, we're going to speed up quite a bit. That's where you see Paul's instructions for living in light of the doctrine we've studied. So if you're wondering if you're going to live to see the end of this study, don't worry. You will, probably. And so let's move on. Last week I ended our study at the beginning of a controversial passage on the topic of God the Father choosing us for salvation. I'm going to reread that passage and we'll move a little further through it. Verses 4 through 6, Paul said, Just as He chose us in Him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Well there's hardly a topic more hotly debated in the church than the doctrine of predestination. Did God choose us? Or did we choose to believe in the gospel? Or is it some combination of the two? Practically anyone who's been a Christian longer than about a day is at least aware of this debate. And I think most believers have planted their flag on one side or the other of the debate, choosing to believe one or the other. But friends, this isn't a sporting event, and we're not rooting for a winning team here. So the question before us is one of truth. That is, of knowing what the Word of God says on important matters of faith. And, to be clear... One side of this divide is wrong because they're mutually exclusive. They can't both be true. So let's return to our study, but I want to go back with a determination to hear from the Spirit and to set aside any pride or any preconceived ideas or past teaching that may not be consistent with what we're going to find written on the pages of the text before us. So last week, Paul explained that we can be confident in our riches in heaven, because, he says, the Father chose us to receive them as a consequence of salvation. He chose us, Paul says, to be in Christ. And as you remember last week, we defined what it means to be in Christ. It means to be a born-again child of God. Today, as we move forward now to the next verse, that is starting in 5 today, you find Paul doubling down 
on the statement that we were chosen. You notice he doesn't back off on it. He moves from you're chosen to you're predestined. Predestined to become a child of God. I wonder if there's any word in the Bible that causes more discontent, more disagreement, and more dispute than the word predestined or predestination. And you know, it's such a shame because, friends, there's no more beautiful nor comforting word in all of Scripture. And the meaning of the Greek word, by the way, is very easy to define. The word in Greek is proriso. The definition of proriso is, and I should add, its only definition is to determine an outcome beforehand. To determine an outcome beforehand. So, on the matter of your salvation, Paul has said twice now in verses 4 and now in 5, that the Father determined beforehand, before the foundations of the earth even, that we would be saved. That decision was specific. It was specific to you. God chose you personally. And it was for the purpose of bringing you to salvation. Paul says you were predestined to adoption as sons and daughters of God. Now, the Bible frequently uses the concept of adoption to explain salvation. You were adopted. Adopting a child means taking someone who was not born naturally into your family and making them. Family, we've had a personal experience with that just recently with one of our families adopting two children from China. Before the adoption, they were strangers. After the adoption, they are equal in every way to natural family. That is the picture that Scripture has chosen, that Paul has chosen to use to explain how you entered into the relationship you have with Jesus Christ. That you are adopted. Later in chapter 2 of this letter, Paul's going to explain this idea a little further, so I don't want to go too far into it. But I just want you to understand that you were not naturally who you now have become because God has acted to adopt you. Peter says in his first letter that you and I were not, at the beginning of our lives, part of the family of God. There are many in the world and even within the church who will say that all human beings are children of God. And that is not a biblically correct statement. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, there's that word again, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the Lord adopted us, as Paul says, into his family. And like all adoptions, friends, the child does not choose the parent. The child does not go shopping. He doesn't take auditions. He doesn't have parents submit resumes. The child is the recipient of a choice made by the parent. The parent chooses the child, and I might add, the parent chooses the child personally in most cases. The child is merely... The recipient. And Paul says, similarly, the Father chose us to become a child by faith. Not on the basis of merit. It's not as though the children are selected because they're the best child of the group. Friends, that's what happened to you and I. Biblically, we were born into a family, yes. But it wasn't God's family. It was the family of Adam. That is, you were descended from the line of humanity that traces its origins back to Adam. And when Adam fell, he separated himself spiritually from God. He was no longer a part of the family of God until his own faith restored him. But his nature is passed on. And all of us enter into life, enemies of God, strangers to the promise of God, outside the mercy of God, and do judgment justly for our sin. 
It requires God to act, to adopt us, to put us back into a relationship in order to overcome that problem. And when that day came that the Lord had selected, the Spirit came into our life, bringing the message of the gospel, and we responded as God intended, and that adoption took place. Now, if you're still struggling with the concept, and I would expect many of you will be, and probably should be at this point, then I want you to turn with me briefly. You can leave your finger in Ephesians 1 for a moment if you need to, but turn, flip, swipe, whatever, to Romans 8, 29. Again, Paul writing in Romans, same author. And speaking on largely the same topic, I want to look at something Paul says in that verse particularly on this issue. In verse 29, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, Christ, would be the firstborn among many brethren. So in that verse, Paul introduces another controversial term. Foreknowledge. Foreknow. Foreknew. In Greek... It's the word progesnasko. Progesnasko is a term that means to know beforehand. So what Paul is saying is the Lord had us on his mind before the beginning of creation. And having us on his mind, he then determined that we should become his children in a day to come. Now there are those Christians who reject the idea that God chose us for salvation. They simply don't agree with that thinking. And in their efforts to explain what the term might mean, since obviously it's in the Bible, and I should add that right now, you can say you don't believe in predestination, but that doesn't really address the problem, does it? Because the word's in the Bible. You can't say you don't believe it, the word's there. You still have to deal with the word. So what people sometimes do is they redefine it. And I've run into people who would redefine the word. They would tell you that predestination means God knew beforehand that we were going to choose him, and then God simply confirms our choice by predestining us, they would say. And as you can probably tell, that's circular logic. Right? If God is merely at work confirming our choice in that future day, then he isn't choosing us at all. There's no choice in that, right? And under that interpretation, therefore, the word of predestination no longer means determining an outcome beforehand. They actually have done something very interesting. They've redefined the term predestination to mean the same thing as foreknowledge. God knowing something would happen before it actually happened, and then confirming it, they would tell you, in some sense. That's like taking the word cat and telling someone it means dog. Because in reality... To predestine means something entirely different than to foreknow. And you can tell by looking at Romans 8.29 that that's true because Paul uses those two words right next to each other in the same sentence to refer to two different actions. If they meant the same thing, he wouldn't have used both of them. Paul uses both words to represent that predestination means determining the future of something in advance of it happening. And then to foreknow means to have a thought of that action before you take it. So, point one this morning is, God had us on his mind before he then acted to choose us for salvation. God did both, but one is not the same as the other. Moving on, Paul then says, this is still in Romans 8.29, as a result of God's choice to adopt us, he says, we now have the promise of sharing in the riches of Christ's inheritance. Notice he says in 8.29 that we are predestined to follow in Christ's footsteps. And then Paul says, Christ is the firstborn of many brethren. In other words, Jesus is the firstborn of creation, meaning he is the first to receive in his resurrected body an eternal 
human body. In that sense, he's the firstborn. And we, likewise, as children of God, Paul says, we share in this very same future. We, too, have in our future a resurrected eternal body coming to us. And as we receive those resurrected bodies in a day to come, as that happens to the church, we become born into our new body. We join Christ in that way. He was the first. We follow him. He is the first of many brethren. That's the concept. But then Paul goes one step further. More than that, as children of God, we share in God's inheritance. Now, this is a very, very important concept. It's really the key issue that Paul is driving to in Ephesians 1. This is what he's saying. The Bible says that Christ, as the Son of God, received an inheritance on the occasion of his own death. You know what an inheritance is, right? We all long for these. (laughs) If it could happen without the death of our parents, we would be really happy about that. But the reality is an inheritance is something you receive on the occasion of the death of someone who has left their wealth to you. So that wealth is transferred to someone else at the moment the person dies. So your rich uncle dies, leaves you an inheritance, leaves inheritance to a family, everyone receives something. But friends, the transfer of that wealth couldn't happen until the person died. That's what an inheritance requires, by definition. Normally, when a person dies, they have a last will and testament, and that document is what dictates how their wealth will be transferred after they're dead, right? But in the case of Christ, and this is where it gets really interesting, in the case of Christ, he died, but friends, he lived again. What would happen if your rich uncle died, left you all his wealth, and then came back to life three days later? What's your first question of your rich uncle? I mean, you'd ask him, how did you do that? But then after that, what's the second question you would ask your rich uncle? Do I have to give you back your money? At Jesus' resurrection, the scriptures say he received back his own inheritance. The irony is Christ's own death produced his own inheritance. In Romans 8.29, Paul says, Christ is the firstborn of the Father. We already explained what that means. And that we are likewise children of God by faith. So get this, friends. If Christ is merely the first of many brethren, many children of God, guess what that means for you and I as well? That means we all are fellow heirs, Scripture says. Therefore, we also share in the inheritance that the Father gives the Son on the occasion of the Son's own death. Paul says this in Galatians, Galatians 4, verse 6. Because you are sons, and you all understand he means sons and daughters, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Therefore, he says, you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Paul says, notice how he starts verse 6, though, in Galatians 4, 6, he says, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts so that we would cry out, Abba, Father. You see the order of events? You didn't cry for God, so then he sent his spirit. He sent his spirit so that you would cry for God. Choosing. Predestination. And then we become adopted, we become a son, no longer a slave, because we're now a son. We have rights to the inheritance, at least a portion of it. So point two is that we have an inheritance coming because we've been made an adopted child of God. Now I want you to see how Hebrews explains this in chapter 9 of Hebrews, verse 15. 9.15 of Hebrews. And we're going to change a word here, because the writer does. We've been saying inheritance, and I said you get an inheritance because of a document, and that document is the last will and testament. The word testament, that word is a synonym. We say New Testament, or we could say the New Covenant. The word covenant is also the word testament in Scripture. They're identical. They're synonyms. 
Keep that in mind as you listen to what I'm reading. Hebrews 9.15 For this reason, He, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. You see the writer talking now about the same thing? He's using the word covenant instead of testament, but he's saying that those who have been called, here again, those who are chosen of God for salvation, receive a promise of an eternal inheritance because it's the natural consequence of a covenant or a testament when someone dies. And Christ died, His last will and testament, or the new covenant we could say, assures all of those who are His heirs that they will receive a portion of that inheritance. That's what we're learning. Jesus' covenant comes with an inheritance which he passes along to his fellow children of God. And now we get to the question that you're probably wondering, which is, what is his inheritance? Well, what did God give to his son as a consequence of his son's death? What was Christ's inheritance? Well, God owns everything in creation. Everything made from days one through six belong to God. So get this. What does God own? Everything. What does God get as an inheritance when God dies? Everything. What He passes on at His own death through His Son. That is all of creation. So, in the future kingdom that we're awaiting, the one in which we'll live on earth in our eternal bodies when we come back resurrected here, the earth won't necessarily look the same. We know that tribulation will take it through the ringer. And then God will do things to restore it for the sake of our use of it. We don't know how exactly it's going to look. But... It's still going to be round. It's going to have water on it. It's going to have earth on it. And we're all going to be here somewhere. And all of it is Christ's, but we're fellow heirs, so we all get a piece of it. We all get some portion of it. Hebrews says Jesus shares his inheritance with those who have been called. And I think now you're beginning to see the significance of the Father choosing us before the foundations of the earth. And if you haven't, let me show you. Paul says you were chosen to receive a portion of God's creation as your inheritance when you come into the kingdom. But when does an inheritance attach? When is that inheriting moment? At the death, right? Where were you when Christ died? Well, see, now that raises a problem, doesn't it? I mean, if I wasn't alive when he died, how could I have been in the will? How could I have been included as an heir for the will if the death of the one who made it happened 2,000 years ago? If you had a family member who died today and they left their estate, they wouldn't have named people in their will who haven't even been born yet, would they? Well, except in this case. Because when God died on the cross in the form of His Son, you were already in the will, even though you hadn't been born yet. How is that possible? Because Paul emphasizes God foreknew And God predestined us to that position as a child and therefore also an heir. And he made that decision before the foundations of the earth. So Paul is saying Christ's last will and testament or his covenant was written before the world began. And in that covenant, if you can imagine this in heaven, that every name of every person who's predestined to becoming an heir was already in the covenant before anything ever happened with creation. So that on the day when Christ was hanging on that cross dying... Your name was already included in the will. Your name was already there as an heir. You were chosen 
from the beginning to be a child of God so that your inheritance would be assured. And therefore, Paul is saying in the letter to Ephesus, you have every reason to be confident that you will be blessed, he says, with spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Friends, how assured is your inheritance if God had written you into a will before he even started the process that led to his son's death? Can anything change that? Point two, your inheritance is assured because your participation in the covenant was assured from before anything ever happened. And then point three, finally, just in case there's someone still resisting the idea that God brought us into the family of God by choice and not by our own choice, Paul adds that this plan was the kind intention of God's will. Verse six of Ephesians again. The kind intention of God's will. In Greek, that phrase could literally be translated God's good pleasure. Or God's desire. This entire plan that we've just gone through this morning is God's desire for us, they say, and it is a good plan. So don't, don't let someone tell you this. I've heard this myself. I, I understand it on, on one level, but it's just not biblical. I've heard people say that a good God, a fair God, wouldn't dictate the outcome of salvation. That it would somehow be wrong for God to be deciding these matters for us. That, as I've heard, a loving God would respect our right to either choose him or reject him. I have to imagine everyone here has heard this, and many of you may even have professed this. Friends, in all fairness and with great love, that is a bizarre and nonsensical statement. Would you rather be assured of salvation by the kind intention of God's will, or would you prefer to take your own chances with your own fickle, sinful will? And may I add... Which of those two would reflect God's love more? His acting for our sake when we couldn't act for our own, or His waiting for us to be smart enough, kind enough, mature enough to figure it out on our own? Which of those two really defines love? Use any analogy you want from your parenting experience. Is it loving for a parent to let a child do things that you know is harmful when you have the power to stop, correct, and do better for them? Or would you step in out of love? I know the challenge we have is with the idea that he didn't choose everyone, and we'll come back to that. But before you look to that question, you need to address the text as it speaks to you first on this issue. That is to say, before you ask why he didn't do something that you think he should, you need to wrestle with what it says he did do. I define a loving God the way the Bible defines a loving God. Colossians 2.13 When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. He made me alive. I didn't have the power to do that myself. And before I was even alive, He had already determined that He was going to grant me that salvation. A merciful God chose me before I even knew I needed a Savior. Paul says this predetermined plan of God was designed to ensure he would be praised for the glory of his grace. End of verse 6. And now, friends, we come to something that I hope everyone will leave with. The last idea of the morning. This biblical definition of grace. I'm sure most of you know what the word itself means. Unmerited favor. We sang it this morning in honor of Georgiana. But have you ever heard someone describing God's grace this way? That it is the offer of salvation? That God's grace, in other words, is He offers us salvation. You ever heard that? Here's the analogy that I often hear. It's like a present. It's been wrapped. God's put it together. It's a gift. You didn't do anything to earn it, but He put it there. Now you have to do what? 
accept it, unwrap it, open it. There's some term we use, right? It's like we have 99% God, but we leave the little room at the end of the process where we had to do one little thing at the end to kind of complete the whole thing. And we use terms that seem to work with the text of Scripture, like gift, something that's an offer. The problem with that, friends, is that notion, though it fits with our perception, I mean, we perceive coming to Christ that way. We remember somebody delivered the gospel to us as an offer. And we remember hearing it, maybe considering it for a while, maybe pondering it, maybe finally convinced that it's true. We accepted it. We, we know that's how it went as we experienced it in our everyday life. And so, from our experience, we might draw conclusions theologically that that's how salvation actually came. The problem is, God's Word exists to educate us concerning things that can't be known from experience alone. And in this one case, more than any other, our experience is not accurate to the way it actually took place. For friends, by the time you are aware of the gospel and convinced to its truth, God has already done the work that brought you there. So to us, it may have seemed that God's grace came as an offer, but by the word of God now, with what Paul just taught in Ephesians, we come to see that that is not the true definition of grace. The true definition of grace is not an offer or an opportunity. God's grace is the predestined and finished work of God in choosing us for salvation. In an unmerited fashion, he looked down the corridors of history and determined that you would be included. That's grace. We didn't merit the choice. We receive it purely as a matter of the kind intention of His will. Friends, grace is not the offer. Grace is God choosing us. So as you come to understand the Father's role in choosing you for salvation, you should find yourself, according to Paul in Ephesians 6, praising Him for that outcome. My initial steps of teaching as a Bible teacher, I'm talking years and years ago, as I came into this process very early, I came with the concept that I chose God, and I was even worse than that. I thought you could lose your salvation. I mean, it made sense rationally, right? If you can choose, well, then you can say no later. If it's all up here, if it's just intellectual assent, well, then one day you can make a choice, one day you can back out of the choice. And that's what I was prepared to teach. And, you know, I went to the Scriptures, and I thought I found things in the text that supported that. And certainly others still do that. And by God's grace, he brought me teachers who helped me see things differently. And I came to understand that I had a bad understanding of what was in the Bible. And as I changed and I began to understand this properly, friends, I had the very experience Paul is talking about here. You start to praise him in a new and better and higher way. Anyone who truly understands the sovereignty of God and salvation is naturally going to feel even more desire to praise the Lord for his grace, knowing like we all have probably experienced, those of us who, who see this in the text, we all come away saying, why me? There's no explanation. There is no answer to that question. Not one that satisfies. The answer is, because he wanted to. And that's not sufficient for us, right? Because that just begs the question, why didn't you want to do it for the, the family member I know who died without faith? That seems unfair for them, doesn't it? As I promised, we'll come back to these issues. They deserve our attention. I'm not afraid of them. Neither is Scripture. But what I don't want to do is connect your willingness to accept what you're reading today to some list of questions that you have for God that you think give you cause to doubt what you're reading. Remember what we said last week. You don't have to understand it to accept it. You can accept what it says, even as you're still struggling to understand all of its implications. The Father freely bestows His grace upon us. 
We didn't deserve it. He didn't owe it to us. It wasn't his obligation. Nothing forces God's hand. Nothing obligates him to save anyone. He saves those he predestined to save. And he does so freely by his grace. And these manifestations that we know so well, like saying a sinner's prayer, like walking the aisle, when that's done with a true heart, that's simply the moment in which God's grace is being manifested. We're all seeing it together. This is the moment. We now understand God has chosen them. But the scripture says that decision, that was set long ago. And this truth will rock your theological world like nothing else. It turns everything in the Bible upside down. It puts God where he deserves to be, in control. And it puts us back where we always were, completely dependent on God's mercy. And I wonder how these truths were impacting the church in Ephesus when they read them. Because the point Paul's making in this whole argument is that while they're so busy working to maintain their their status in a status-conscious culture, they were taking time away to do work, to earn things that were going to perish, overlooking the fact that in what they already had, they had an eternal inheritance far greater than anything they could provide for themselves. Of course, the difference is they were trying to get what they wanted now versus what God's prepared to give later. But the key thing to understand is what God has given to us as an heir is not something you work for. We talked last week about the fact that there is eternal reward and that reward does have some connection to our service. But even apart from any of that, just being an heir ensures that you have some portion in the inheritance, right? That God is not forgetting his children. We all, Paul says, are heirs of God. So the Father not only loves us so much that he saves us from our sin. But he's willing to go a step further and share the world with us in an age to come. You know, when you were a child, did you get excited for Christmas? You know, to see what your parents gave you, to understand what they had in store for you. And really, what was the excitement based in? Was it based in the stuff? I mean, yes, but what was the expectation based in? Wasn't it based in your parents' character? In their loving you? In their desire to please you? Weren't you really hopeful because you knew your parents' were the kind of people to do their best to make you happy on that day to the extent that they could, right? Well, if that's true for earthly parents who are sinful, look what Jesus says in Luke 11, 11. He says, Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or he's asked for an egg. He will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Remember we read earlier that the Holy Spirit is just a down payment, the beginning of something. So can you imagine what the Father has in store for you in the creation to come? I mean, think about it. What beautiful part of this earth, what home, what farm, what hillside, what mountaintop, what island. You can visit me on Maui, but other than that, what island? I mean, we don't know, and it's a fun game. We aren't going to guess. I get it. But the point is to live with that hopeful expectation. And the primary reason is so that in the world you live in now and all the temptations that it presents, they won't get a hold of you because they can't compete. Not if your eyes are on eternity. Our Father is good. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you, Father, for your grace. We can't begin to thank you for your choice. Father, that is, that is something that just inspires on us every time we consider that for no reasons except your unmerited favor, that your, your kind will, that we would stand here today and be considered a child of God by faith. Thank you, Father, for that. We'll have an eternity to thank you, and even then it won't be enough.
Father, we still struggle with what these things may mean for us and what it means for others who are not as yet in the, child, in the family of God. We struggle for what it might say about you or we struggle for what it might mean if your choice was not for them. We ask, Father, that as we continue this study in weeks to come, that you would address these concerns in our heart, that you would give us the answers, and that I also pray, Father, you would not let our heart be hardened to the truth simply because these answers create discomfort. But rather, we would turn it to the purpose you gave in Scripture, that it would turn to the praise of the glory of your name, and that we would use it in that way, Father. Thank you for this church, for our love, and for our devotion to your word so that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.